0: KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You know why I'm jamming to ABBA today? Because I just got back from Stockholm, where I went to the ABBA Museum. I'm here with uh, everybody here at KFI, Joey, my producer, Josh in the booth. We're all dancing to ABBA today. It is just the happiest music. My 14-year-old daughter said to me, Mom, you know what Sweden gave to everybody? They gave us IKEA. They gave us H&M, and they gave us ABBA, and I said, yes, they did, honey. And she said, ABBA just brought happiness to the whole world, didn't they? <laughs> it really is some happy music. We got home and had to watch Mamma Mia. Hey, Joey, so when I was at in Stockholm, I went to the ABBA Museum, where you get to make a video where you're performing as the fifth member of ABBA with holograms, and... Can you put that video up on our KFI page?
1: Yeah. You you can send it to me. Yep. All
0: right. So if you would like to see Dr. Wendy Walsh (laughs) (laughs) on stage with holograms of ABBA dancing to Dancing Queen, uh, I don't even know which song it was. It might have been Dancing Queen. Go to KFIAM640.com, keyword Dr. Wendy, and I will make a fool of myself and you can all see. But it was fun. It was all for good fun. So you probably didn't notice that I was away because of the magic of radio. Joey and I pre-taped a couple shows for you. But my oldest daughter is studying abroad this semester in Stockholm. And so I went to visit her. But of course, she didn't want to spend her whole spring break in Stockholm because they're the whole semester. So then she wanted to go to Budapest. I knew very little about Budapest and Hungary and just looked it up and saw that, oh, they just get in big baths together. There's lots of baths in Budapest and uh, lots of castle touring and lots of walking, which is good. So we did both Budapest and Hungary. And here are the two things that I want to tell you. And if you know me, you know I have a PhD in clinical psychology and I am obsessed with the science of human attachment, but also with human behavior in general. And I always look for the intersection between culture and biology. Because, you know, we come into this world with this biological predisposition to have certain kinds of personality and behave in certain ways. And now, of course, we have a lot of identical twin studies where, sadly, twins were separated at birth and adopted by different families. So we try to study what part of them is culture, what was learned, and what part is genetic. So when I travel, I'm always fascinated with culture. And can I say one thing? We all need to pack up and move to Sweden right now. (laughs) Okay, besides the weather that wasn't, you know, it's cold, all right? But they dress for it, and the clothes are great. I will say this. They are almost a perfect culture right now. They they have human quality of life figured out. I did not see one homeless person. I did not see one obese person. The public transportation was clean and new and no graffiti. Did you know even on the local streetcars around town... You just get on, and there's an actual human on each car in a lovely uniform who comes up and asks for your card. And yeah, because they employ everybody.
1: For- wait, 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 like a, an old school train conductor, like who kind walks of. down the aisle. He
0: walks down the aisle, and the there's one it. on each car. Wow. He doesn't go from car to car. There's one yeah. on each car, and okay. they and they chat because they're regular neighbors who take the same route every day, and they chit chat. And uh, it was also. Kind of ethnically diverse, I was expecting to see wall to wall blonde and blue eyed people. Did you know in Sweden their indigenous people are blonde and blue eyed
1: That's bizarre, That's
0: actually, wow. <laughs> but it makes sense because totally. race is all about the weather, yeah, it's whatever our whatever weather conditions our ancestors encountered change their physiology their biology to make them deal with that weather obviously the hotter the climate the more you're going to need to protect your skin with melanin and the darker the climate the more north the more you need to open up the eyes with light colors like blue to let more light in right It's just basic common sense um so what else did i love about sweden they are a cash-free culture there's no money in sweden you use a credit card or a debit card for virtually everything, and you just tap it. It's like the fastest thing. It's amazing. Um, I said to my daughter, well, what about the people who don't have jobs, and don't have bank accounts, don't have debit cards, credit cards? And she said, oh, everybody's paid something by the Swedish government. Even college students who go to school for free get a small stipend as a living expense. Uh, obviously, the elderly get paid things. I spent, I had a lunch one day with a friend of mine here in LA. She's from Sweden. I had lunch with her brother who's a criminal defense attorney there. And he met us for lunch and he was trying a trial in the morning, a murder trial, a 19 year old who'd committed murder. And I thought, Oh my gosh, how terrible. And I said, is he facing life in prison? Is the jury out? He goes, well, we don't really have a jury system here. We have a panel of three judges and because my client, I had him psychologically tested and found out that he's on the autism spectrum, he will never see jail. He will be, um, he will spend time in a mental health facility. He will be rehabilitated. Uh, he will be helped because of his condition. Meanwhile, what do we do here? About one-third of our prisoners are mentally ill. And we just throw them in jail. And we don't give them the health, I mean, so many people, even with um, some slight psychopharmacology, can become so much more functional. There are things that we could do anyway. I found the people to be lovely, everyone seemed pretty happy, although they're a bit reserved. but once you open them up they're really the Swedes are just happy people here's a fascinating thing about Swedish culture, so we talk about Oh, you know, our violent media in America, that's what's making us so violent, right? No, no, no. I believe that aggression is natural and normal for the human species, and we had to kill or be killed plenty of times by wild animals or to eat a meal in our anthropological past. And so as we become a more peaceful people, that aggression has to go somewhere. And I believe it goes into our media. And so Swedes have some of the most violent media, violent crime fiction. Where do you think uh, the girl with the, what tattoo? Dragon tattoo? The girl with the dragon tattoo came from. Uh, and also, Joey, because I know you're into aggressive, angry rock music. What do we call that? Metal? What is it called, your genre?
1: Yeah, you could, yeah, uh, heavy metal. Sure. Heavy
0: metal? Yeah, yeah. Swedes, big time.
1: Oh, God, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that that I do know. That's like the Mecca for for, for extreme metal, I would say. Yep.
0: So extremely (laughs) angry music. So what happens is they go about life in this peaceful way, and then they go put on some headsets or sit in a theater or get deep into a crime novel, and all of a sudden they're in the deep trenches of primal human being life. (laughs) And it's just a form of entertainment. So we left Sweden and we went over to Budapest, Hungary. I did not know a lot about Hungary before I went, um, to bring you up to speed. I did some research and, uh, they have a very far right wing leader at the moment. In fact, they have a big election on April 8th. Oh, today is their big election. No, oh, they, they vote on Sundays. That's a novel idea. Maybe we should do that when people aren't working. And, um, He has been closing the borders to immigration. There are billboards everywhere that show lines of immigrants and huge stop signs. Uh, He apparently has made, uh, taken the, I call it the 501c3 status, the uh, tax-deductible ability of all religions away, except for Christianity. So he's not endorsing religious plurality. Um, I don't know. Madeleine Albright's new book apparently says this is the beginning of a fascist regime. Um, the people there were not warm. We're not happy. And they're set up for tourism, and we were in the touristy places, so you would think they'd want to be welcoming to people who are handing them money. But I did not find any warmth in the Hungarian people. And believe me, I'm a friendly, chatty person, and I smile a lot, and I try to warm up people, and I just couldn't get it. Now again, let's think about culture and its impact on personality. Hungary, during World War II allied with the Nazis. And then they were bombarded and taken over by Russia. They are now independent. But culturally, it's like you mix a Nazi with a Russian. Uh, I get right. about,
1: So were so they just a very like, stern people?
0: Yeah, they, Could they just couldn't I mean... get them to warm up, and they seemed a little grumpy. Just grumpy. Okay. And, like, for instance, I was in a beautiful fine dining restaurant uh-huh. one night. I had had my first glass of wine, and the waiter brought my main course. And as he set it down... I noticed that my glass was just about empty. And I said, oh, could I please have another glass of Pinot Noir? And he said, I'm not the wine guy, and walked away. <laughs> not, I'll let the wine guy know, or the wine guy's over there.
1: That's, that's it. No no, no motivation to help you. Maybe. Like, I
0: had to figure out who everybody's job description was there. All right. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk. I'm not just talking about vacations to tell you about my vacation, of course. There's always a scientific reason. I want to talk about the state of the American vacation and why we don't take enough vacations and why vacations are good for our mental and our physical health. That's all when we come back. You are listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. You can follow me everywhere online. The handle is at drwendywalsh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'll be right back. Larry Perel has the news.
1: What is love? Baby, don't hurt me.
0: Don't hurt me no more. Maybe KFI AM 640. You are listening to Dr. Wendy Walsh. No I like to talk. Of course, I like to talk. I do radio. I like to talk about the science of how we relate with each other and human behavior. And I'm always interested in the intersection between biology and culture. So, as I mentioned, I just got back from a trip to Sweden and Budapest. And I just love being in other cultures. And I know it makes me feel good. I want to pause and do a tiny little uh, side railroad train about an Airbnb experience I had just to let you know. So in America, you know, we're all service oriented. But we have these startup disruptor websites like Uber and Airbnb and where people rent out their apartments or their houses or their rooms. And and you're like, I don't think they really – it's just an app. I don't think you can actually get a human and I don't think you'll ever really be backed up with customer service. Well, believe it or not, a couple hours before my flight was to leave for Stockholm, my host in Stockholm inexplicably canceled. And how I found out is I got a call from a real human at Airbnb who apologized and spent an hour trying to find me another place. But it was four in the morning, their time. None of the hosts were awake to approve. So they said, listen, just go get a hotel and we'll reimburse you. So I'm thinking, yeah, right. I call, and here's another side railroad chain if you want to tip a consumer tip. I call American Express Platinum. Listen, that card is only, it's not a commercial here. It's only $450 a year is the fee on it. I say only because you use it one time, one of their special uh, benefits, and you've paid it off. So I called their fine hotels and resorts department, and of course they get me a five star hotel in Sweden. Then upgrades us to a suite, um, free breakfast every day, plus a hundred dollar resort credit that we use for dinner. So we check out, and I got this bill for like twenty three hundred bucks. And the Airbnb person had said, "Just take a picture of it with your with your iPhone and just upload it into the app." And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> right. I'll ever see this money, and they'll cut it down. I'm not joking. Within an hour." They had paypal all that money into my account, reimbursing me for my stay, as well as a refund from the apartment that I had booked originally. Then, because they must have been following my trip and saw that I had an apartment booked in Budapest and knew when I was going to get back to L.A., the day I get back to L.A., Airbnb sends me a bouquet of flowers and says, I'm so sorry this happened. I'm like, what customer service? Only for grumpy Americans, right? I don't know. Anyway, that was amazing. So let's talk about why you don't take vacations. I don't know exactly, but let me say this: We're starting to learn to take a little more vacation, but not like the rest of the world. In 2016, average vacation climb in America climbed all, or vacation use climbed all the way up to <clears throat> 16.8 days per worker per year, and that's up from a whopping 16.2 days. Now, you have to understand, the average person gets about 22 and a half vacation days a year. 22 and a half vacation days. You know what that means? That's money left on the table if we're only taking 16 days. Um, it, that's uh, 662 million vacation days were left on the table and not used in America. So I'm going to tell you right now that you need to use your vacation. And here's why. A recent study released by the American Psychological Association concluded that vacations were work to reduce stress duh by removing people from activities and environments that they associate with stress and anxiety when you're walking down the street whether it's stockholm budapest or wherever you're like i'm sort of in it but not of it i'm like an observer of the stress but i'm not really it's not my stress so it's really relaxing um also heart disease prevention a host of studies have highlighted the cardiovascular benefits of taking a vacation. In fact, in one study, men at risk for heart disease who skipped vacations for five consecutive years were 30% more likely to suffer a heart attack. So come on, go, go somewhere. I think that employers should understand that vacations actually create improved productivity. You see, we're rushing to be productive, but we can't always consistently perform at peak levels. So what we do when we're trying to work around, humans work better, not if we're, you know, putting the same cog in the wheel at the same time, at the same pace every day. We need a little bit of variety. And what happens when we have vacations, I know we all complain about this part, is we have to do a whole bunch of extra work to prepare for our absence. And then when we come back, we have to do a bunch of catch-up work. Well, actually, that's really productive work. And so employers get more out of us just by um, us taking vacations. Uh, also, frequent vacationers are less likely to leave their jobs. So this is good for employers. Uh, we, finally, we get better sleep. Uh, restless nights and disrupted sleeps are common cons- complaints of the American worker because our minds are always going with all the things that we need to do. And I will tell you, when I was on vacation, I slept long and heavy. Every night. Okay, maybe it was the wine that I had but uh, it, and the big meals and all the walking. Oh, talk about walking. Remember, in our hunter-gatherer past, the average human, and this is what our bodies are wired for, walked about 12 miles a day and spent a lot of climbing in trees, hiding from wild animals, and maybe the odd little sprint as we're running from a lion. So when you're on vacation, like, honestly, if we had the time why take a cab? Why take a subway? We might as well walk there. One of our longest walks was to this bath house in Budapest. That was a 60 minute walk through the rain, which was beautiful under an umbrella. And at the end of the day, we're counting our steps on our app on the phone. And we were walking seven to 10 miles a day on our vacation. So of course we don't gain weight on our vacations. We got relaxed. But what travel does more than anything is it disrupts your routine. And it introduces novelty with your brain. And that improves cognition, thinking. It reactivates reward circuits. Think about it. When you're on vacation, you've got to figure out how to get to new neighborhoods, new transportation, how to get around. You've got to be aware of new customs and rules. Yes, it can feel stressful and frustrating and kind of like minor annoyances. But ultimately, your brain benefits because it keeps you on your toes and it stimulates neuroplasticity. I also have to say that travel helps interpersonal growth as well. Seeing different people in different cultures, encountering them directly as individuals and human beings, opens yourself up to being more tolerant and more flexible about the unfamiliar. And, you know, travel is a literal escape where you can focus on your own pleasure and on yourself. It's a welcome change of pace. And that helps reduce your body's stress hormones. So travel is good for us. Please take all your vacation. Uh, Another study showed that bosses like to have (laughs) a year's notice. Sorry, I never plan my vacations a year ahead. They're lucky if I can get 60 days. But uh, do give your boss as much notice as possible and show them how it's good for productivity. Okay, when we come back, Let's talk. Joey and I were talking earlier because he teaches at Berlitz and speaks a number of languages. And we were talking about language acquisition and the brain, something we need, especially if we're traveling internationally. And many of you have children or grandchildren who are learning multiple languages early in life. I'm going to explain how that works. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFIM 640. Larry Perel has the news for us. Yeah. Oh, KFI AM 640. Dr. Wendy Walsh here. That Nat King Cole. He sounds good in any language, doesn't he? One other thing I noticed when I was traveling is how Europeans speak so many languages. In Sweden, virtually everybody speaks English and they move effortlessly into Swedish with their friends and family and back into English with very little accent. In fact, I met Americans working in Stockholm because in the hospitality industry, you pretty much only need to speak English. Um, And I was thinking, oh, I wish I spoke another language well. I say well because I was born and bred in Canada. And from, I think, grade eight through first year college, I did take French. But when you're studying in a classroom, it's not the same. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's been a lot of years since I've been speaking it regularly. Although I did live in Paris when I was young and modeling, and I felt like I was complètement belong. That means completely bilingual at that time. But um, I've forgotten it. One of the ways I think you could tell when you know you're getting bilingual and, Joey, I'm going to ask you this question because I know you speak a number of languages, is when you begin to dream in that language, do you ever dream in different languages?
1: Uh, it's rare, but I do. And I, it's always a special moment, actually, when I get that first dream in a new language.
0: Yeah. yeah. So tell me the language. You were bought, brought up speaking only English, right? That's, that's did, right. Yeah. Okay. And what have you learned as an adult?
1: Uh, so starting from there, I, I first started off learning Spanish in high school, uh, up until my first years of college and I majored in German. It was one of my majors in college. And so I started, uh, studying there, went for three years in German, then got interested in the Bible. And so started studying, uh, like ancient languages. So, uh, ancient Hebrew, okay. Hebrew. You are such
0: Hebrew. a geek. And totally. Okay. I
1: know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> like this is seriously what excites me. Like it's, it's pretty bad, but, um. And the last one was uh, Arabic because you know I was living over in the Middle East. I was teaching English over there uh, in Jordan for a few years, so started learning the language.
0: So, be, besides English, which language are you most proficient in?
1: Uh, Arabic, and, and that's not saying a lot to be honest. with you. that's the best language I'm at. But I'm I'm just wow. Yeah.
0: And you teach now at Berlitz. <laughs>
1: that's right, yeah. English mm-hmm,
0: to mm-hmm. to English learners.
1: Yes, it's all ESL. So.
0: so, you learned most of this besides high school um, once your brain was. Fairly formed. Yeah. And the research out there is pretty clear that the best time to acquire languages, however, that's why you're such an anomaly and it's so amazing, is when you're young, the preschool years. In fact, when we, my kids and I moved to Italy when my littlest was uh, almost three, and she went to a little preschool there called Canadian Island Preschool that was all in English because in Italy, the Italian parents know that if their kid grows up to only speak Italian, they're going to be pretty limited. I think the Swedes believe the same thing, too, obviously, because everyone speaks. And so they send them to English-speaking preschools. In fact, if you are a preschool teacher and would like a living abroad experience, they're always looking for American, Canadian, UK, Australian teachers to teach in these preschools because you don't speak a word of Italian to the kids. That's the deal. And they're two and three, and they pick it up very quickly. And I was amazed that just in six months... And of course, she was acquiring language at a fast pace at that age. How proficient. I mean, she spoke the best Italian out of all of us in the house. And it was so cute. She'd like I'd put the bread on the table and she'd say, Mamma Paniolio. <laughs> Paniolio. And she'd grab for things and go, Mio, mio. And I was like, oh my God, she's so cute. And now, of course, she doesn't remember a word of it. She's 14, but um, it was adorable at the time. And Researchers say that the earlier a child learns a second language, the better. Um, I think the second language acquisition skills peak at around age six or seven. Now, that's not to say that we cannot acquire languages at other times in the lifespan. It's just harder. And I think the most interesting research is that creativity, critical thinking skills, flexibility of mind are significantly enhanced if children learn a second language. So what I was going to ask you, Joey, is when you learn a language, don't you learn a culture at the same time?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's deeper Be- than just what you're saying. Right,
0: because it's not just the translation of the actual word. It's, oh, they use that word to describe that.
1: Exactly right. Mm-hmm.
0: And, why, and now because they use that word to describe that. Of course, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you can think of an example for us. Um, like, for instance, I have heard that in Spanish... Somebody tweet me or send a message on Facebook tell me this is true, that there are many words for love. Is that true? And, you know, we got love. We got love and we got like. And we love a dress and we love that dessert and we love our husband. It's just one basic. And many languages have many different words to describe feelings. And indeed, some languages describe feelings that we don't even have in English. So therefore... We don't have the feeling. Uh, Remember we did a segment once on uh, how some cultures have different feelings that don't exist in American culture. And one of my favorites was, I think it was a Japanese word for the feeling you get when a house guest leaves. So you're both happy that they're gone and sad that they're gone. And there's a feeling around that. (laughs) Um, So One of the things, when I was coming back from uh, my trip abroad and I was on a plane, changing planes in Oslo, Norway, I sat beside a couple who had on their lap my favorite thing in the entire world, a baby. I'm the kind of person that when I get on an airplane and somebody sits down with a baby beside me, I quietly do the touchdown cheer. And I had like a big, young, single guy sitting beside me. And as soon as the baby made, it wasn't even crying it made, he was one row back and over to the left and it made a squawking sound. He was probably excited. And he went, Oh, hope that's not going to go on. And I went, what do you mean? That baby's so happy. I would love to. So of course I friendly up to the parents, like some crazy lady on a plane and I asked them, could I have the baby on my lap? And of course, let me tell you this, especially in a safety of a plane, like what am I going to do? Throw it out the window. Um, You know, mothers are so tired. Traveling is so exhausting to be able to give your baby a break, especially on an 11-hour flight, right? So I took that baby for a couple hours, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. We could take a nap. And I played with the baby. Now, the baby was uh, nine months old. I teach developmental psychology at Cal State Channel Islands. So I will tell you right now that by the age of about nine or ten months, most babies understand most language, They don't have the oral dexterity, the oral development to make words yet, but they understand what's going on. That's why one of the ways to help your baby um, have less stress and anxiety is to always tell them what you're going to do to them before you do something to their body. Imagine if you're walking around in the land of giants, right? And uh, so anyway, I had a great time with this baby. This baby was learning two languages, Norwegian and English. And the parents had many, many questions about it. And I was assuring them that, you know, they might mix up words sometimes. It might take them a little longer. But um, bilingual children who learn a second language at an early age just literally become native and both. So, Joey, what do we have for us? I've been using this app on my phone called Duolingo. I've heard of it, yeah. It's a pretty good one because mm-hmm. I've been trying to bring my French back. Mm-hmm. I've only tested out on this app 37% proficiency. Okay. Okay, hey, don't don't
1: beat yourself up. That's not bad for Ce a long time. No bon. practice,
0: you know? Ce <laughs> n'est pas bon. Je veux expliquer perfect. Wow. Hey.
1: Wait. That's not you could have fooled me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um and there's another one called earworms. Earworms, yeah, that's right. That you told me about, that I love because they teach language with a music bed. Yeah. Because music also helps you learn, right? The music beats, beats yes. behind it. Josh, can you play a little sample of earworms for us? Do we have one there? Can you tell me how to get to? Pouvez-vous me dire comment aller à?
1: Can you tell me how to go to?
0: Pouvez-vous me dire comment aller à?
1: To get to and to go to?
0: Aller. Ah,
1: aller.
0: Aller. Oh, aller. He sounds so happy. (laughs) Can you... Pouvez-vous? Okay, so they sound like they're... Can you... They sound like they're flirting, and I don't know. The music to me sounded too busy in the background. But I guess if you're listening to it over and over,
1: yeah, that's the thing. You know, certainly it's not for everyone. It's a new, you know, method of teaching. Um, but through repetition and through the kind of musical bites or whatever, they kind of help imprint it more into your brain.
0: I know when my children were little, I taught them my cell phone number when they were two years old to the Barney song, so they could sing it three one zero da 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 da, and they would Say there's exactly uh, how many uh, ten ten beats in that? So they knew my cell phone number. All right, enough about language. I also traveled with my trying to separate from me nineteen-year-old daughter. Let's talk about mother-daughter relationships. How close is too close? You're listening to KFI AM six forty. This is the Doctor Wendy Walsh Show. Larry Perel has the news. Oh help me, please, Doctor. I'm damaged. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Oh, ladies, our relationships with our mother or our relationships with our daughters. They are so different than the kinds of relationships that dads and sons have. Dads and sons, I don't know what it is. It's like parallel play, parallel loving. They I, Whether it's they're homophobic or whatever, they start their separation fairly early They're staring at a ball game together. They're working on a car together. They're learning business together. But they're not intertwined in each other's hearts like women are. So mothers and daughters can be very close. I have two daughters. I know their thoughts. We are very close. But as a mother, I know that in order to do my job well, or if I've done my job well, I work myself out of a job. And the last thing I want is for my daughter to feel that she's responsible for my emotional welfare. But there are plenty of other mothers who unconsciously go through life putting emotional pressure on their daughters to be almost their secure base. I have heard from plenty of millennial girl that their mom calls every single day, sometimes two or three times a day. And the, the daughters often feel guilty. They put off calling their mom. Um, they, but they feel suffocated and they feel resentful. But they love their mom too. So it's a weird situation to be in. Listen, if you're a mom, your daughter just wants to, some space in her life. She wants it without your emotional clinging. And why are you clinging? Well, you know, as a psychologist, I'll say that sometimes a mother's over-involvement could come from something as extreme as a full-blown personality disorder or differing cultural expectations. Maybe they came from a culture where mothers and daughters were supposed to be intertwined. I mean, um, but usually it's run-of-the-mill attachment stuff. Maybe the mom is divorced, single mom syndrome, and she hasn't successfully recoupled. And so she uses... Her daughter as an emotional lifeline. Or other times, she's emotionally checked out of her relationship with her husband. And so she uses her daughter for emotional support. I do want to interject here that this happens plenty of times with mothers and sons, specifically single mothers, only child sons. Oh my goodness. It's little, I've actually had conversations with some of my single mom friends who have one son who's gone off to college and their feelings of loss. And they're like, you don't understand. It's better than a husband because you don't, they listen to you and they do what you tell them. (laughs) And you're just so close. And I mean, I was having a, I was at Pilates the other day. I love to do Legree Pilates. My whole body's stiff today because I did it yesterday and I hadn't done it for two weeks with all the travel. So every inch of me hurts. But anyway, there was a mom there and She was quick to show me pictures on it said, how's your son doing? And she was quick to show me pictures on Instagram of him with his sexy new young girlfriend and going, look at this. Look what they're posting. Look at this. But I know she was showing it to me because it was distressing to her because he was separating from her. So it does happen with sons as well. But the mother-daughter thing um, can be particularly close and it can hurt daughters because if a mom... Has her own issues and she's clinging the daughter is forced to take on the role of good daughter she's actually trapped inside an unhealthy place taking on her mother's needs instead of doing healthy separation now i'm quite clear that my oldest daughter was doing healthy separation when we were on our trip to europe not only did she organize the whole thing so it was quite a relief for me to not have to like make a reservation look at a train map get directions. I just followed along behind with the credit card. And, um, but she also didn't even walk beside me and her little sister. She was always like 10 yards ahead and we were always just trying to follow her in the crowd. And she kept turning around like, hurry up. Why are you going so slow? But then, you know, this was her physically saying, I'm on my own now. I can lead. I can do it my way. One of the reasons why it's really important for moms and daughters to have a healthy separation is so that a daughter can move on to create a healthy romantic relationship for herself. When she leaves home, when she makes a healthy separation, it's going to involve some grieving time for mom and dad. Ideally, she's going to transfer those feelings of love um, to her primary connection. Now, it might be a close friend, might be a girlfriend, might be a boyfriend, but she creates a new emotional secure base this is healthy this is necessary and it's mom's job to take care of herself in her own way her job is to let her daughter grow up and leave and it's it's like this necessary developmental task and what mom's got to do is find a way to heal her own wounds um Find a way either to get another love relationship, to make sure she has a, uh, a wonderful social circle around her. Find other ways to meet her emotional needs. Um, now, it is possible, sometimes if you're just too intertwined, you need to actually take a break from each other. And I am not against taking a break. And it is possible to reestablish closeness after a period of healthy separation. But you have to have that period of healthy separation. And when you come back together, you're going to have a new relationship with new kinds of boundaries. Don't expect your daughter when she's in her 20s to tell you every deep, dark secret of her life. She needs to have some secrets. She needs to have some sense of self. This is part of growing up. So when my daughters were in Europe, they did two things that started startled me. It was so much like something I did at the same age that I realize that they are carrying genetic memory. When we come back, let's talk about genetic memory. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And uh, we're talking about genetic memory. Someone told me they use this idea in a video game, Joey. What video game are we talking about?
1: That is uh, Assassin's Creed.
0: Oh, yes. I sound like I'm the demo for that. (laughs) Assassin's Creed. Uh Uh-huh. Sweet mom out there killing on the side. Apparently, if I lived in Sweden, all my aggression would go into my video. But now my aggression can go into, uh, what, blogging and screaming on the radio. Um, So here's my theory. When we come into the world, we are given a genetic payload of personality, and that may include our, whether we're an extrovert, an introvert, an introvert, personality type. It may include uh, whether we get angry quickly or we're more even-keeled. It may include whether we have a full-blown personality disorder or suffer from mental illness, but a lot of that as a genetic piece however I believe that in our DNA comes all the experiences of our ancestors and we are but a link in the chain a very important link you can be a weak link and you can be a strong link and the strong link carries the journey of their ancestors on their backs and propels it into the future and this belief that I have gives my life meaning. I've done a lot of research into my anthropological past or my most recent ancestral past is what I mean. And um, I know the hardship. And when I read about the hardship of particular people from my family or from a certain era, from a certain part of the world, I feel it in my bones, right? But there's also this idea That our own children are injected with a piece of us that just goes on to play out in developmental intervals at the time that it's meant to explode. I, for instance, I don't know if every girl goes through this, but when I was in first year of college, I had a weird, mild obsession with drag queens. And I used to go to a lot of drag shows. I was obsessed with it. I never mentioned this to my kids. It's not something I thought of. By the way, when I was a freshman, I loved to find drag shows. This is long before RuPaul's Drag Race. Long before it was a big business. And now my daughter had become obsessed with drag queens, usually as a senior in high school. And she's like, hey, mom, you want to go to Hamburger Mary brunch with us? We'll go see drag queens? And I'm like, hell yeah. You didn't even know I was into that. Right? And I think it was like in her genes. I don't know. So when we were in Europe recently, and I want to pause and do a little side railroad train to tell you that do not tweet me and email me and post mean things online and saying that I am elitist and I travel posh. I have been traveling internationally with my kids even when I was a poor single mother living in a studio apartment. You don't have to have money to travel internationally. There's so many budget airlines, especially out of Europe. We flew to Iceland on wow, wow, for like 300 bucks. We flew to... Uh, our uh, Norwegian Airlines to Sweden for like 600 bucks.
1: Wait, that's from here? from the Yes. States? So $300 to Iceland for? Oh, yeah.
0: Wow has a crazy oh flight. God. It was like 340 or something oh my each. Okay. Yeah, we ended up taking five kids. It was so cheap. Oh. I know. Uh, and also when we were in Budapest, it was so inexpensive. You could go out for a dinner for three of us with alcohol and the bill would be $40. So, uh, you know, I, and then I stay in Airbnbs. Uh, which are much more affordable than hotels. So it is possible. You just have to figure it out, figure out the ways. The other thing is I put my own house up on Airbnb whenever I travel so that it covers the cost of my trip. So every vacation I take these days is free because I open up my house on Airbnb, which is great. So I just want to throw that in. All right, go back to genetic memory. So we're in Stockholm and uh, or Budapest, Budapest. And um, I had a Western cop-out and went to an intercontinental hotel for a facial. I needed a break, okay, from all those climbing castles. And so my daughters went shopping. My 14-year-old comes back, eighth grade, and she says, Mom, look at the dress I bought. It's so 70s, and 70s are so in. And she takes this dress out of the bag. It's what you would call an overall style dress, a mini dress. And it is green wide whale corduroy. And I look at the dress and nearly faint because it is the exact dress, green, wide whale, uh, corduroy, that I had for my 8th grade dance. I know. I wore it to a dance. Well, hey, it wasn't jeans. It was a step up from jeans, okay? Um, And I'm like, wow, she's the same age, the same grade. She bought the same dress at the same time. like. Did something fire in her neurotransmitters at that time and say, this is the thing I want? Then just this week, my older daughter's spring break went on and on. So we left her in Budapest and she went on to Geneva, staying in Airbnbs and then Paris by herself. But, you know, college kids and millennials, they find friends online and they go have lunch with friends. So anyway, she calls me from Paris yesterday and I go, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm sitting in this beautiful little park that I found and... My friends are off shopping. I'm going to meet them later. But I just keep wanting to sit in this park because it's so beautiful. It's so quaint and I love it. And you know how big Paris is. You know how many parks they have. You know how many gardens they have. And I say, oh, really? Which park? And she goes, oh, Les Jardins de Luxembourg. And it was like my heart stopped. That was my favorite park to go jogging in in 1980 when I was 18 and lived in Paris. The same park. She's sitting in the same place. However many years later. I'm like, does her brain, does her neurochemistry know? I've never mentioned this park, right? And I am a big believer in something called intergenerational psychology, that we inherit the anxieties, the fears, and the tastes from our ancestors. And in this case, it's the direct ancestor, mom. But I think it even goes way back. In fact, Joey, you you learned... Were you converted to Judaism late in life? You were like 24?
1: Uh, Yeah, I was uh, about 24, 25. Yeah, when the actual-
0: Wait, what religion were you raised in?
1: I was born and raised uh, Catholic. Catholic. Oh,
0: you had an Italian dad. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, Catholic. Uh-huh. And why this fascination with Judaism, do you think, originally?
1: Uh, I mean, I could give you all kinds of reasons, um, but originally it's just that I kind of fell out of, of believing in uh, some of the teachings that I was coming across in, in Christianity, Catholicism. thought it was kind of contradictory toward uh, maybe uh, you know some of the other biblical uh, concepts and everything. And so, mm-hmm. just over time, I was trying to find my own way, and it, it didn't at that time involve Jesus or anything like that. And so... Uh, I had no reason to doubt any of the stories in, in, in the Old Testament, and so yeah, I just kind of went down the road to uh, so Judaism. So
0: you did the courses, yeah, you did everything did but the to, to what's it called? And everything the mikvah? No, what is the falling in the water called? The, yeah, that, that's that,
1: yeah, yeah, that you uh, that's going in the mikvah. That's right. So it's, like it's a ritual immersion. Exactly right. right. Yeah. So
0: so later, years later, yeah. you did a genetic test, yes. twenty three and Me. Yes. What mm-hmm. were you surprised to find out? All right. So
1: initially, I was surprised to find out. Well, that first of
0: all, you thought you were.
1: I thought I was 50% Chinese, 50% Italian, uh, you know, from my Chinese mother and my Italian father. But and I
0: don't actually see either of those in you, but okay, you look like a regular California white guy, but okay. <laughs> you, look, you look
1: normal. You don't look like either of those weird things. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I found out that the big thing, it said uh, I was uh, 15, one five percent Italian and what was it? Uh, 22% Chinese.
0: That leaves a whole majority of you that's something else.
1: Yeah. And uh, the big, the big, big, big thing there was 20% Middle Eastern. All it said was Middle Eastern. And so that opens it up to Arabs, Turks, uh, and Iranians. And you learned
0: to speak Arabic as a grown man.
1: Yes. And this is where it gets. And
0: right. you moved there. I did. To I moved. Saudi Arabia?
1: Uh, It's Jordan. 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 Right. And And this was years before I ever took this uh, ancestry test. I just got these results a couple weeks ago. I would say I just found this out. And, you know, when I was originally converting to Judaism, I did all those tests and everything. I never went in the mikvah. I never did that last step, even though I was ready and all my beliefs, living my life Jewishly, Judaically. And I think you turn off
0: technology on Friday night.
1: I I my uh my Shabbat, my Sabbath Yay. is biblical. So it's a little <laughs> bit different than what m- most modern Jews so uh,
0: It would practiced. be good for your brain just to say. There's lots of research on taking a tech detox. And oh, I'm well, really great, yeah. jealous <laughs> of my Orthodox Jewish friends who do unplug for 24 hours. That's
1: it's, a great thing. Too. It's, it's sure, good for us.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you didn't do the mikvah. But yeah. what what did you learn in 23 and me?
1: Well, because I got my most recent results and it turns out that my ancestry is actually Jewish. My Genetic ancestry is already Jewish, Sephardic Jewish, which is the sort of Middle Eastern brown skinned Jews. So, this whole time, now I understand why I never did that final step to convert to Judaism. I never had to. It was already inside me. And as hokey as it sounds, I'm talking on a scientific, genetic level.
0: Yeah. You are Jewish.
1: Yeah. And so that it answered that question for me now, you know, and I feel reinvigorated in life. Actually, I feel really.
0: When we know who we are. I mean, I think we know on an unconscious level, but when we are given concrete science Mm -hmm. that makes us go, ah, I knew that (laughs) now it feels right.
1: Yes. It's like
0: when people come to therapy back when I was practicing in a clinical practice, part of my job I felt was to simply give them words to describe their feelings. They would come in and tell me their stories and what was going on. And I'd say, ah, you felt ashamed when they said that or you felt angry because they were leaving you out and you felt abandoned. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what it is, right? And so when you give something a name, it takes away often the dangerous power of it or the pain associated with it. And I am so fascinated by intergenerational psychology. In another show, we should talk about my theories on why we have the Black Lives Matter movement now, why we have the Me Too movement now, I really believe that we have gone through generations of struggling immigrants or slaves brought across. And it is only this generation who is healing enough to be angry about it all. And now they have, and they have the strength to have the voice. And it's fascinating to me. Okay. When we come back, can we talk about our friends? We have all kinds of friends. And uh, before we go and talk about them, I want to tell you that while we're on the break, did you know that you can win a family four pack to the Newport Boat Show in Newport Beach? That's April 19th to 22nd. You should know I grew up as a boater. My dad was Navy. We never had cottages, we always had boats. They were power boats. So, this is the premier yacht show in the West. Newport is the one show that features big boats and trawlers, more than 200 boats on display, no limit on the size of the bigger vessels. Uh, So I want you to win a family four-pack, and here's how you do it. Joey's going to go answer the phones right now. You call 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534 for your chance to win. And uh, you've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI. Larry Perel's got the news for us. 40, for some reason my headset just gave out. And it's a nice iHeart Radio. There it goes. I got it. All righty. Let's talk about our friends. Oh, do we have a winner, Joey? Where is it? Who won? Who's going to that boat show? Jerry and Alyssa Viejo. You've just won a family pack for four to the Newport Beach boat, boat Show on April 19th to 22nd. Have a fabulous time. Maybe buy yourself a gorgeous boat while you're there. Um, hey, can we talk a little bit? About our friends you know we have these kind of rules or these unspoken rules where we think every friend should follow the same rules they should be loyal they should be intimate they should be maybe available all the time uh, whatever it may be whatever you have you have an idea in your head for how a friend should be but the truth is there are many different kinds of friends and with each of those friendships, we have a different contract. Now, that contract may be uh, it may be unspoken, or it may be unconscious completely that you're not even aware this contract exists. But if you break the contract by acting in a different way, an example might be, let's say, well, let me go over the kinds of friendships first. So we have things like, Historical friendships. These are the friends who knew us when. These are the friends we maybe grew up with. These are the friends that when we come back into their lives, even after a long break, it's like our brain is pulled back instantly to middle school or high school or wherever we knew them. And we feel safe. We feel understood. They know us. Now, if you go back to a historical friend somebody who you haven't seen since elementary school and ask for money for your current life because you need a loan, they're probably going to think you just broke a contract, dude. Because in a historical friendship, you're supposed to go back to how it was in middle school or how it was in high school. Now we also have, but historical friends are important by the way, and we keep in touch with them on Facebook and we see them once in a while, maybe at Christmas when you go home. Um, We also have what I call stage of life friends, And these are friends who are very valuable and even very intimate during a particular stage of life where you needed that social support. These may be college friends who you did late night, all night study sessions with, who you pulled all night partying with, who you lived with in dorm rooms. These college friends, you have a certain fraternity or sorority with them, even if you didn't join a fraternity or sorority, a certain kind of closeness with them for the rest of your life because of this stage. But when you leave and get into the workforce and you go to different parts of the country or you have different careers, you don't necessarily spend a lot of time with them, but you will never forget them. I actually had a roommate when I was in my, I think, early 30s, and we were roommates for four years, four years. There were jokes about us whether we were going to get married or not. Um, And she was just a good girlfriend, and she was a great roommate. And now it is many years later, and we still always call each other or send a card for each other's birthdays. And of recent years, we've been trying to get together and celebrate each other's birthdays, because this stage of life, we haven't forgotten. In fact, my daughter said to me the other day, Oh, I hear you're it seems like you're mentioning Sylvia more often lately, or you're seeing Sylvia more often because I got a birthday coming up and I want to get her involved in it. And I said, yeah, it's interesting. Like we went through a couple decades where we didn't see each other that much, but that those four years were so important. Then we have what I call intimate friends. If you're lucky enough to count on one hand, the friends who you are truly authentic with, truly deeply authentic, honest with, that will, that will have your back, that will drive you to the airport, that will show up at an emergency room. You are a rich person if you have these kind of intimate friends. And indeed, we need these kind of intimate friends for our health. The other thing that friends are is we have different kinds of friends, don't we? Friends are actually our friend circle. They're all pieces of us. They not only enliven a piece of our personality, but indeed they reflect. We are attracted to them because they are like us in a certain way. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've held a birthday dinner and you invited like your 10 closest friends and coworkers. And a lot of them might not even know each other. And they sit around a table together and you have that feeling that where you feel whole, where you feel complete, because psychologically, all the pieces of you are together, and that's what it feels like. So in our primary relationship, when we break up from a friendship, it does feel like a part of us dies. That's why breakups are so painful, because it's an identity crisis, not just identity, how we present ourselves in the world, but a part of us dies. Now, as I said, every kind of friendship has a contract and it's unspoken. It's often un- unconscious in some way. So let's say you had a common interest friend, and this might be a friend that you uh, just go to yoga with, or you, uh, you know, a carpool mom that you drive the kids to school. And the extent of your conversation is really just this shared task, this shared common interest together. If you suddenly opened up and became very intimate and said something that you would only say to your closest bestie, that person, if they're not ready to turn that friendship into an intimate friendship, might get pretty cold. All right. When we come back, let's talk about friends with benefits. And when I mean benefits, I don't just mean sexual benefits. I mean friends with health benefits. How friendship is good for our health. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perrell has the news. KFI AM 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh here. Uh, I was hearing a very good gossipy story in the background, so I guess, uh, Joey, you'll have to tell me the rest of that story later. Uh, I just got a text from somebody who uh, had a question about friends with benefits while we're talking about friends. Before I go there, I just want to say that even though there are different kinds of friends in our life, historical friends, stage of life friends, common interest friends, intimate friends, no friendship is meant to happen from the beginning to the end of life. We grow We go through phases, and sometimes when we let go of a friendship, it is because we are letting go of a piece of us, and sometimes that piece of us needed to go. I just want to say that, that we don't have to, in fact, our longest relationship in our lifespan is our siblings. Remember, our parents will die off, our romantic partner comes later but our siblings are there from the beginning to the end. And if you're good friends with your sibling, that's a real bonus in there. Because what we do know is that social isolation is not good for your health. In fact, the bigger your social circles and the more within those social circles you have intimate friends, the better your health. Um, There was actually one study that was a meta-analysis where they looked at 148 different studies that looked at more than 300,000 participants and they found that those with adequate or high social relationships, friends, family, neighbors, or colleagues, were found to have a 50% greater likelihood of survival than their friendless counterparts. So friends are really, really important. Turns out, according to the research, social isolation is as bad for your health As smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's as dangerous as being an alcoholic. Honestly, it is as harmful as never ever exercising. And social isolation is also twice as dangerous as obesity. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to just make one best friend and overeat and drink a lot and start to smoke a lot and that you'll be okay. All right. Um, But People who are socially isolated, or if they only have one friend or two friends, this is not enough. Think about it. In our anthropological past, the more people you could reach out to at different stages of your life for different emergencies, the better off you were. So let me ask uh, this uh, listener's question about friends with benefits. He was basically saying that when guys are just friends with women and girls, it's a long long-winded three-part tweet. Um, He was wondering how guys aren't able to delineate between friends and friends with benefits as well, and that when a guy tells a woman that he has interest in her and she's just a friend, that she often gets mad. And he asks, why? Well, let me explain. First of all, all human beings keep backup mates. They may not know that they are backup mates, but they do keep backup mates. They keep people in their lives who they think, you know, if my primary relationship uh, died, broke up with me, had an affair, here are some of the other places I could go. We are naturally wired to do this. It's not immoral. I mean, you don't, you have boundaries, right? You're not actually flirting with the person, but you're like, "Eh, you know, maybe. And so women also have a great benefit to having men around who can protect them, provide for them, do things for them. But if they don't give up sex, then they don't end up having to risk raising their child at the same time. So friends with benefits, most, or friends without benefits, without sexual benefits, mostly benefit women, of course. Men, of course, are busy keeping a backup mate. So why do women get mad when the guy who's in the friend zone says, hey, I actually am interested in you? Because she knows she's about to lose a good worker man. A guy who's been doing errands for her, fixing stuff. She knows she's going to lose a friend if she doesn't act on it. Even though she may have been keeping him as a backup mate, it may not be the time. It's all about timing with the backup mates, right? So, that's why. Um, All right, let's talk about how you can broaden your social network. Let's say you just got terrified by what I said about social isolation, and you want to figure out how to make more friends. It's really really simple first of all look around your world and those who are closest to do you to you your neighbors people in your apartment building in the elevator in your office introduce yourself it's the easiest way to make a friend just say hi I'm Wendy I do it all day long I'm an extrovert so I was having this conversation with two other women at a dinner party the other night and they claimed that they were introverts and they said being in a room with lots of people Even though they do well and they're talkative, at the end they feel exhausted, where I get my energy from people. So if I go to a party and people are standing around looking uncomfortable, I'm the one who walks right up with my hand out and goes, hi, I'm Wendy, and how do you know the host? How'd you get invited? What's your story? Right? I just move right in there. You need to learn how to do that if you want to make more friends. The other thing you could do is get online and reconnect with long lost friends, um, you don't necessarily have to go retrosexual. <laughs> Everybody, when they first join Facebook, they go and find their first love. Yep, it's called going retrosexual. Mm, did they get divorced? Uh, it's very common. And they look back at past relationships through rose colored glasses. Like maybe he's different now. No, the relationship will be the same now. Trust me. Um, but you can reconnect with long lost friends. How about, if you're a certain age, becoming a mentor? Share your knowledge with a younger or less experienced person. Yay, you might find out you've got something to learn too. Um, I know this sounds so simple, but it's really true. Just smile more. You will meet more people if you just don't have a resting bee face on all the time. Just smile when you see people. I, I just traveled internationally. There's no better passport to show everybody than a smile. When you're in a foreign country, when you walk into a restaurant, when you see new people, just smile. That's why I was saying I found the people in Budapest to be kind of unhappy because I gave them my best smile and I wasn't getting smiles back. Um, But it makes you approachable. And if the person you're smiling at, even if you're an introvert, is an extrovert, it will give them a clue that they should talk to you. You know, when I walk into a party and nobody's talking to each other, I look for the person smiling at me. I mean, you don't have to do a big old wide Chesser cat creepy smile, but just smile. You'll be amazed. Um, I always think the best place to meet people is through doing volunteer work because you meet kind, generous people who are like-minded. The best, you know, back after the 1992 riots, which I covered as a news reporter at UPN, um, I actually helped with a group of friends create a, a camp for kids in the inner city from government housing projects in Watts. And we were all volunteer-driven, and it was all young people, and we rode buses and took the kids to the museum and the beach and whatever. And everybody got to know each other through this volunteerism. And many of them are dear friends today because of it. Also, I want to end with a very important thing. Pick up the phone. Stop texting. Honestly, the other day, a friend who I hadn't talked to in about 10 years, but you know how we're always sort of in each other's peripheral vision because of social media? I mean, he follows me, I follow him, but we haven't actually been in the same city or talked to each other in 10 years, he started texting me about something he saw in the news. And my cell phone number has been the same for 100 years. So he was texting me and I was driving. So I couldn't text back. So I just hit call. And he's like, wow, you pick up the phone. I'm like, of course. And first of all, I'm in L.A. We talk on the phone. We drive. And we had a, a delightful conversation. It was fabulous to catch up and hear about his kids and where they're going now, et cetera. And I felt so connected to him because we had a telephone conversation. Pick up the phone, please. Okay, when we come back, there is a little wedding coming up in about five weeks. And every week I'm going to do a wedding countdown and give you a few fun facts about the big wedding. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you better stay with me. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news for us. Oh, help me, please. Doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there a.m. 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh here. Can we talk about marriage? The state of marriage. I was listening to Joey. Can you try to get social anthropologist Helen Fisher on the show sometime? I just love her. She's Match.com's chief science officer, and she has been studying human mating for her entire life. And I was listening to a podcast the other day with her as a guest, and she said, and I quote this, I was so happy that she's quoting the same statistics I am, so I knew that I was correct, accurate, um, that in the year 1900, if you got married and you professed to stay married until death do us part, the average length of that marriage was about 12 years. If you got married in 1990 and you professed to stay married until death do us part the average length of that marriage was about 12 years point being we used to die from death now we die from divorce which is a different kind of death long story so we are wired to be serial monogamous or we have the widest range of human sexual behavior of anybody And marriage tends to be a largely social institution, a good one for raising children. We don't have Sweden here and their 18-month fully paid parental leave that could be taken by the man or the woman. In fact, in Sweden, they legislate fatherhood because 18 months are not allowed to be taken in totality by the mother. At least three months must be taken by the other partner. Presumably, could be a guy. So you see guys like wearing babies everywhere, out with toddlers because they're on their paternity leave. So um, we, right now in this country, marriage is one of the best institutions that we have for raising kids because we don't have the social benefits, the social supports to help single parents. So marriage is still alive and well. Although, did you know for the first time in history, there are actually more unmarried adults than married adults in America. Amazing, huh? they are more single people. Because all those were serial monogamists. I know Monique Marvez, when I quote-unquote analyzed her in my drive-by makeshift therapy session, which I think is online on my KFI page, uh, she called herself a serial monogamist. Helen Fisher calls herself a, a serial pair bonder. I like that, serial pair bonder. Um, and I think I would fall into that category. My longest relationship has only been nine years. It was, eh, okay, nine years. But uh, anyway, people are still getting married. They walk up to the altar, and I think they think marriage has gotten bigger, more spectacular, people put more money into weddings than they ever had before. And I think they think that if they invest a lot, financially and publicly, invite a whole lot of people, wait, in 1950, the average age of meeting until altar was six months, the average time span between meeting somebody and getting married was six months. I don't even believe you really know somebody until about 18 months into it. Take some time to show your real self. So, but that wedding in 1950 was usually in mom's living room with a few close friends and family and some tea sandwiches afterwards. Today, oh, they spend $100,000 or more at big hotels. I don't know if you've ever spent the weekend at Terranea, But it is like the 405 of brides there crashing into each other. There are so many weddings that resort down in Palos Verdes does uh, every weekend. It seems to be the place for weddings right now. I myself have been to many weddings there. I know the ballroom. Like, which ballroom is it in? Oh, yeah, I know my way. Been there. Plenty of weddings. Um, So there is a big wedding happening across the pond. A royal wedding in about five weeks. It's happening on Saturday, May 19th. And America is particularly interested in this wedding because Prince Henry is marrying an American. Harry. Did I say Henry? Well, his actual real name is Henry. You're right. It's You're right. Prince Henry Charles Albert David of <laughs> Wales. Oh yeah. Also known as Prince Harry. <laughs> so, hey, I'm calling him by his real name, Prince Henry. Prince Henry Charles Albert David of Wales, also known as Prince Harry, is marrying a girl by the name of Rachel Meghan Markle, also known as Meghan Markle, an American actress best known for playing Rachel Zane. Her real first name is her character in the long-running legal intrigue drama Suits. I assume she's quit her job to marry the prince. They met because they were set up by a personal friend on a blind date. And after having like one dinner, he invited her to go camping in Botswana and they lived in a tent for five nights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Saturday, May 19th, I may very well get up for it. On Pacific time, it is at 4 a.m. Pacific, 4 a.m. Pacific. Um, Joey, we're going to have to find out between now and May 19th, who's going to air it. And where I can find it, although it'll always be on the internet, I'm sure. But um, what's interesting every week, I'm going to give you a few facts about this upcoming marriage. And I think the most interesting thing for Americans is not only that it is an internationality marriage, an American and a Brit, the first time in a royal marriage or not first first time in a long time. Uh, it's also an interracial marriage because Meghan Markle is biracial from Los Angeles, and her mom is African American her dad is white her mom's a yoga teacher you know there are a lot of interracial marriages today it's not a big deal uh, in fact since 1967 the number of interracial marriages in America has increased five times today it's approximately seventeen percent of married couples seventeen percent uh, one in ten of every married person today is married outside of their race um, of African Americans marry someone of a different race. And that's continued to go up. Uh, Now, when I say an interracial marriage, it could be Latino and Asian. It could be black. It could be white. It could be mishmash anywhere. I wonder with all this wonderful mixing and mating. And remember, when you know somebody's race, you know about as much of them as if you know their shoe size. What you really know about them is the kind of weather their most recent ancestors had right? That's what you know. That's what changes race. Um, but what is the face of the future going to look like, Joey, if we have all this interracial marriages?
1: Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, what happens to example for like the basic white person, because with all this intermarriage, I think over time, you know, what happens?
0: Well, first of all, look at you because you apparently are, uh, jewish middle eastern and maybe arab <laughs> because you speak good arabic and italian and chinese yeah. and i'm sorry but you look like an average white guy to me so it's all mixed in there
1: As it's been it's pros and cons in that yeah.
0: Pros and cons, right exactly <laughs> um you know time magazine a few years ago did a computer generated image of what the new the average person in the world is going to look like with all they you know did an algorithm and figured out all the mixing made. and she looks like uh in fact, can we put her picture on our KFI page? Yeah, I can post it. She up. looks like uh, an average Latino, Portuguese, Italian girl, right? And that's I guess where we're all headed. Oh well. Wow. Anyway, I will have more every week on the royal wedding because there are lots of fun facts. I am here every Wednesday in the one o'clock hour on the Gary and Shannon Show, and as usual every Sunday from four to six on KFI, the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. You can also always find me on the iHeartRadio app, keyword Dr. Wendy. Thanks for being with me. You've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next.